Well, I, as always, when I fill in for Pastor Scott, which is an honor and a privilege for me at least, um, he gives me limited carte blanche to do it. And what I mean by that, that's my words, not his, he says, first of all, whatever you talk on, whatever you teach or preach, just keep it between Genesis and Revelation. I say, okay, I can do that. And then he says, well, and don't get into anything controversial. And I said, okay, I can't talk about this or this or that or this or that. Oh, I'm sorry, Lois. This, this, and this. <laughs> Lois and I have a continuing discussion about how I count. Lois counts the American way, I count the European way. So, anyway. So, anyhow, I thought, you know, with a wide open gamut, if you will, uh, a character study is always interesting, you know. There's Abraham, Jonah, and Peter, and John. And a topical study, you know, grace, mercy, salvation, whatever. Or an individual book study of those. So I thought, well, if I flipped a quarter, what would it be? Well, I didn't flip a quarter, but mentally the quarter landed on the edge. So we're going to have a combination character study and book study. And to keep you from further suspense, so you can sit back in your chairs and relax for the next 40 or so minutes. To give those of you that haven't got the handouts yet, um, it's a combination overview of Romans and the Apostle Paul. And I was explaining to Lois, you know, what I outlined to do uh, with that, uh, looking at some of the things that we know about Paul himself. Uh, consider the settings that he was involved in, where he wrote from and to, and then look at a few key points about the book itself. And she said, is that all you're going to do? And I said, well, yeah, it is. Uh, this is going to be a very quick uh, study. Hopefully it will refresh some things for you and uh, if not at least encourage you to dig in thank you to dig in a little deeper it, it will not be like um, some of you may remember the name of uh, Pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse from the 20th century well, Pastor Barnhouse had, he 
uh, had a series on the radio back then when radio was radio, not like it is now. And if you think of one night, very compact message on Romans is tough. What about his weekly 11-year series on the book of Romans that he did? So we're just going to do one evening, so relax. Relax and you can unbuckle your, your seat belt. Um, I did give you a handout. It was not as uh, comprehensive as last week, but um, give you a, somewhat of an idea. So just for fun, for the next, let me fix it here. For the next minute, take out your pen or pencil and go through that little short quiz there. And go. more time, all joking aside. Okay, how many total books are there? How about in the Old Testament? 39, everybody said the chorus. How about the New Testament? 97. How many are considered letters and epistles? And how many books are attributed to Paul? That's true, but generally 13. So he basically, he wrote nearly half the New Testament. How many of you, uh, a sidebar question, how many of you earlier this year, February and uh, middle of April, uh, March, February, March, yeah, that's the sequence. Uh, did you attend Pastor Scott's discipleship series on Sunday night? A couple of you. If you didn't go to that, go back to the church website, roll, scroll back through, 
and download those PDF handouts that he had. He had a five-part series on how to study the Bible. It's the best one I've ever been involved in. He brought the first night. He had two of the big tables like we have in the core filled with all sorts of resource books, different Bibles, atlases, commentaries, all sorts of things. So go back and really uh, do yourself a favor to dig into that and carve out some time and, and study on your own there. And here's a suggestion, whether you're looking at uh, Romans or another book, read the book in its entirety in a different translation than you normally read. I've done that uh, in preparation for uh, tonight's lesson with Romans uh, at least three or four times. And I read it actually a couple of times. I was sitting outside early in the morning watching the birds and listening to the, watching the animals come through and say hello and watching the planes on their glide path and the Charlotte Douglas. And I pulled out my phone. I've got a, a Bible app on there, Bible Gateway, also Bible Hub. They're very similar, very good. But I sat down and opened up Romans and flipped through that. And uh, I finished in about 40 minutes in a translation I, I use frequently, but not all the time. And it really made book jump out at me. So try that sometime. A couple items about Paul, and you have to kind of dig around in the New Testament because there's not a real concise chunk of scripture where Paul or somebody else says, okay, now here's everything we know about Paul. That doesn't happen. You have to pick and choose and put it all together. Uh, we know, of course, that he had, um, he used two names. Saul was his uh, Jewish name and Paul was his Roman name. And I've seen uh, talk, Kathy said, you know, depends on who you ask about certain things and theological matters, that's often the case. Sometimes I've seen the question attempted to be answered, well, why did God change his name? Well, first off, God did not change his name. When he started his mission work, his church planning in parts predominantly of the Roman world, and we don't know this for sure, but it's a reasonable supposition. Many scholars think he thought, hmm, when I was back in Jerusalem, they knew me as Saul, and that 
didn't have too good a reputation, so maybe I'd better use my Roman name. We don't know, but that's a possibility. He wrote it, generally it's attributed somewhere around the AD 57, 56, 58, somewhere in the mid-50s, and most likely when he was in Corinth. And we'll come back to Corinth in a little bit. Uh, he was a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he had high credentials in both the Roman circles and Jewish circles. And his, in addition to being, you know, an apostle, teacher, preacher, what was his given trade? Tent maker. Wow. What am I doing up here? He studied under Gamaliel, or Gamaliel if you prefer, who was a first century rabbi. Now, that fellow, interestingly, was the grandson of Hillel the elder, who was a very revered, respected, and quoted first century rabbi. Uh, the Mishnah, which is the recording of the Hebrew oral, oral traditions, referred to Hillel, um, or referred to Gamaliel as Gamaliel the elder. It was a sign of respect, a title of honor. And they wrote, they'd written in the Mishnah and said when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. So he was a tremendously honored and respected person that Paul studied under, tutored under, if you will. We don't know for certain, but he could, he, Paul, could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. It's not explicitly said one way or the other. Uh, there are some inferences, but specifically, concretely, uh, it's, it's really not known. Historians haven't really, and, and early scholars have not flipped that coin, so to speak. Uh, if you remember in Acts 26, when he was before King Agrippa giving his defense, uh, when he was basically on that trial, he said, thinking of his past history when he was rounding up the Christians and persecuting them, he said he cast his vote against them. So that, that's a possible clue. He also could have been part of kind of a Sanhedrin deputized SWAT team 
if you will, to go out and round up these Christians. Uh, and then when you read his uh, account in Acts 23, when he was before the Sanhedrin, when he was hauled there by the authorities, parts of that says he perceived, he understood that part of the group was the Sadducees, part were the Pharisees. And of course, he was a Pharisee. And of course, he made his defense in the Pharisee group of Sanhedrin. said, hey, he's one of our guys. We don't find anything wrong with him. Of course, the Sadducees were just on the opposite end. Um, I don't want to take much time. I'm sure you've heard about the Sanhedrin, but just a 93-second recap, if you will. That was the Jewish religious and legal council. It was made up of 71 members, and generally the Pharisees and the Sadducees held opposing beliefs. If you find and read about a belief of one group, then you can just almost be sure that the other group held the opposite view. The Sadducees, they rejected the oral law. They believed in a strict interpretation of the Torah. They did not believe in an afterlife or angels or spirits. They were more political, they were very elitist, and they were very wealthy for the most part. Pharisees, again, almost opposite ends of the spectrum. They did embrace the oral law. They believed that an afterlife, the resurrection of the body, and angels and spirits. So there you have the divide. They were a smaller group, <clears throat> but they tended to be more in touch with the common people, unlike the Sadducees. And they, they were pretty influential. Uh, interestingly, when there was a case brought before them, uh, the Sanhedrin, man, I'm running out of room there, but they sat in a half semicircle so they could see everybody. And like our Supreme Court, when the voting started, the youngest, newest member was the first one, so he'd not be influenced by the older people in the council there. In all of Paul's writings, he made over 70 references, either direct or indirect references to Old Testament. Scripture. Now, as I said a second ago, he studied under Gamaliel. He was tutored in the Torah. He knew that inside and out. So it's very, uh, it, it's not uncommon that you would expect that, that he would have that many references. Uh, just a few highlights, you could spend all night on any of them, but 
kind of hop skipping and through his life. You recall his the account of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. Think, think when the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, I want you to go to this particular street, which by the way exists now, Straight Street, and lay hands on this guy because he's a chosen instrument of mine to spread the news about my son. And remember what Ananias said. Uh -oh. <laughs> I didn't put her up to that. No. <laughs> he did. She's on her own recognizance, um, I think. But he said, Lord, don't you remember? This is the guy that was rounding up everybody. What, what's going on? Can you, that's what's recorded in scripture. But put your, try to put yourself in his place. Can you imagine what he might have been thinking? If that's a stretch of your imagination, roll the clock back into some recent history. Suppose you were a Austrian Jew in 1938, and you lived near the Sudetenland, and some night, God spoke to you and said, you know, I want you to go to Bechtesgaden and minister to Der Fuhrer. He's going to be one of my disciples. Can you imagine what that person would have thought? Or in the steppes of Russia, somebody got the call and said, I want you to go to Moscow, to the Kremlin, and minister to Comrade Stalin. What might that person have been thinking? Also in chapter 9, he recounts his um, escape. He sojourned in Arabia for three years where he received teachings from Jesus, Galatians he mentions in that. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, he gave a very brief recap of his troubles, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 27. Uh, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was in prison. not exactly the mission that he would have probably hoped for. And then, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Scott touched on it, uh, that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12, um, 6 to 10, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. 
And there's, again, that is one of the many things that we really don't have a good grasp of what it is. I know in our community group class ever so often we'll be discussing something and somebody will say, well, I just wish we knew more about whatever it is. Yeah, we don't, but God tells us what we need to know, not what we wish we could know, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, a lot of theories have been put forward. It was a psychological or spiritual anxiety. Uh, perhaps it was a person pestering him, hindering him, uh, being a stone wall to him, holding up his work. Could have been some physical issue. A lot of scholars believe it was that. But whatever it was, it bothered him enough that he said that he prayed the Lord how many times? Three. Lord, take this away from me. And Father God heard him, but he said, My grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. My grace, my unmerited favor, is sufficient for you to get you through this. And he said, Okay, I'll do it. I'll that's and that's all he, he left it right there. Again, uh, if you flip back to Acts 23, when he was before the Sanhedrin, he was a combination theology professor, apostle, evangelist, attorney, and actually a pretty good politician because he knew how to speak to this group. In fact, if you recall and read when he was hauled before um, Festus, and Agrippa, he did not stand there. I mean, maybe he was bent over, we don't know, with all his injuries. But he was not indignant, he was not defiant. You know, you bunch of clowns, what did you haul me in here for? He was respectful to them. He said, most excellent Festus, most excellent Agrippa. He was respectful without being cowering, but he was not arrogant either. And if you look over in Acts 20, you find that Paul could, on occasion, be a lengthy speaker. <laughs> Remember the story of Eutychus. Paul was speaking late one night and speaking and speaking, and speaking. And the young man fell out of the third floor window and died. And Paul went out and prayed for him and he recovered. When I was a kid, many years ago, the church I grew up in, we had benches that were um, varnished we didn't have nice padding like this. In the summertime, 
when I was in short pants and I would sit on the bench and move, I would leave part of my hide with that. And then sometimes as I got older, a lot of the guys, we, you know, it was coat and tie back then and hats for the ladies and gloves and all that. And you, time to stand up and you feel like part of your shirt or your suit was left on the back of the bench. Of course, there was no air conditioning. The air conditioning was a palm leaf fan or a cardboard fan stapled to a flat piece of wood from a funeral home in the area. <laughs> and I remember several times, it seemed like a, a visiting evangelist for an evening, you know, they had three or four nights of the service. And I remember distinctly, we started at like 7.30 at night and this fellow, he was, you know, pretty good speaker, I guess. I think I, he kind of liked to hear himself because I kid you not, in an hour and 45 minutes, he was still going strong and it was past my bedtime. Uh, I think a lot of people were kind of uh, dozing off at that point. Not to say that our back and legs and other parts were kind of petrified from that hard bench. <laughs> so those are some high points about Paul. Again, there's tons of others that we could talk about. But I wanted to look real quickly at um, the settings that he was associated with. The city of Rome itself, Estimates vary, but generally it's thought that the population of Rome and the area around it could have been as high as a million inhabitants. Roughly half of them were slave, half were free. The haves lived pretty well. The have-nots, not so much. It was the capital of the empire, of course. There were many pagan gods. Emperor worship was rampant. It was a very loose moral climate. And they had, as your history books will tell you, you may remember from school, an excellent road system. Commerce could move freely and easily throughout the empire. But more importantly and key was the fact that when they needed to disperse their army, they could deploy them uh, very quickly over those roads, some of which are still in existence today. The city of Corinth, very small, maybe in relation to Rome, maybe 80,000 people, more or less. Again, pagan worship, idol worship. 
but it was economically a very, very, very important city. If you look at um, the back of your Bible in the um, map section, you'll see it's a very key area on a very narrow isthmus of land. That isthmus was just about three and a half miles across. And what made Corinth so important from an economic standpoint, when ships would sail into the port from either the east or west, since it was a peninsula there, instead, and it was a very rocky, rough area for sailing instead of sailing around from one port to the other the merchants would actually portage their little vessels from one side of that isthmus to the other three and a half miles probably with logs and wedges and all sorts of things like that right now there's actually, if you dial in and look on Google Earth, there is a nar very narrow channel that cuts through that isthmus. Um, it, and it's sloped like that, and from top to bottom, it's barely 100 feet wide. So an ocean-going vessel could not get through there, but a small fishing vessel or pleasure craft would certainly be able to get through there. Then on your outline, I've given you several different versions of outlines that um, try to capture what Romans is about. Um, it is one of the most important books of the Bible, certainly of the New Testament. If you look on the first page of whatever version you have in front of you, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that is Paul's main focus of this letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. John MacArthur, the uh, current pastor and commentator and author of Study Bible said this about the book of Romans. It has been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and capture the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. 
It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. Martin Luther of Reformation fame said this about six or seven verses of chapter three of Romans. He felt like this passage was the center point, the center focus of the book of Romans and even the whole Bible. Beginning verse 21 of chapter 3, we read, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That word justified is repeated a couple of times. Declared righteous. One commentator put it this way, justified, it's just as if I had never sinned. And here's how he did a little mnemonic to help you read that, remember that. Just If just if I'd just if I had never sinned. And then we have the Roman Road scriptures. If you don't have those marked in your Bible or have them committed to memory, um, there's another homework assignment for you. Uh, I've seen different ways that they're compiled, but generally I, I use four myself. Three Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 5, 8, that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And folks, I have been studying and speaking and preaching about that verse for 50-odd years, maybe longer. And I still have trouble wrapping my little head around it. That God would send his Son to die for me 
while I was still a sinner. He loved me that much. And He loved you and you and you and you and you that much. 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 10, 9 and 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. couple of more uh, some people use 1023 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and 8281 there's no now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus there's a passage that he wrote Paul wrote in chapter 7 Beginning three verses, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse, uh, beginning verse 23 of chapter 7. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law in my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Remember earlier I said that he, Paul was born in Tarsus. In and around Tarsus where he was born, there were certain kind of ancient, marauding, pretty dangerous tribes and they had a very peculiar way to punish murderers. If a person killed someone, they would tie to that person the corpse of the person he killed. And it was not very long before the disease and decay of the body affected the person who did the killing and he himself would die. We're not sure, but Paul may have been thinking about that when he said, who will deliver me from this body that is subject to death, this law of sin. Chapter 12, verse 2 is the part that I'd like to 
finish up with, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now that's from the NIV. Let me read that same verse from the J.B. Phillips translation. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. And then chapter 16, verse 22, last but not least, let's don't forget Tertius. Who was he? He was the scribe that wrote Paul's letter for him. And what was that couple of big couple of weeks ago, that big word that Pastor Scott used to describe Tertius, what was it? What? I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Manuensis? Amanuensis. Amanuensis. Pretty good. Yeah. And sometimes at the end of Paul's letters, he would almost add postscript this is me, Paul. This is my writing. I endorse what was written. A couple of takeaways. Like Paul, never be ashamed of the gospel. Right off the bat in chapter 1, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Always share the good news. Always share the good news. And remember that verse in Romans 12. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Sometimes in our daily lives we feel like we're getting squished, my word, by things forces that would cause us to go a different direction than God's direction. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold our minds. And be a witness in your circle of influence. You have, you have circles of influence that the person sitting next to you doesn't have or sitting behind you or in front of you. It may be 
a work is a work relationship, uh, a club, a social event type thing. There are people that you can reach that I can't reach. There's people that Drew can reach that Rick can't. We have all different circles of influence. People that we can share the good news with. Can I mention something Pastor Scott always said to us is, tell your story. Nobody can argue with your story. Yeah. Your own salvation story. Yeah. Yeah, if you get into a situation where you know, somebody says, well, you know, this was written 2,000 years ago, you know, 66 books, 40 writers, more or less, three different languages, it took 1,500 years, I mean, I can't believe this. Okay, but let me tell you what God did for me, what God did for you. Like she said, tell your story. Tell your story.